that jarring cacophony tells you you're listening to the Power of Three podcast, where Doctor Who fans get together to discuss TV episodes, the latest Big Finish releases, or are even joined by some special guests. And it's the latter that we have today for our 100th episode. I'm Kenny Smith, and we're going to be discussing an episode that was actually broadcast on TV, speaking with the people who made it. And it's not just any episode, it's a David Tennant one. But before we get to our guests, let's meet my podcast co-conspirator today. The one, the only, the dad of Jasmine. It's John Bolin. Woohoo! Hello, John. Hi, Kenny. Jasmine says woof. Oh, excellent. I just translated that, and that's a very kindly thing to say. So, excellent. Hello, Jasmine. I assume that, like myself, you are a bit of a fan of our fellow Scot, Mr. David Tennant. Absolutely. Absolutely. Mr. McDonald's, as I call him, you know. Oh, yeah, of course. Yeah, he's a bit of a special talent. Do you remember the first time you were aware of him as an actor? <clears throat> yeah, I um, I was aware of him as a very young actor in the... What was it called again? The thing about the asylum and um, taking over the asylum yeah taking over the asylum yeah yeah when he must have been just out of drama school at that point so yeah that was the first time and then obviously he was cast in russell t davis adaptation of casanova which i saw a couple of but not all so yeah but when he was announced as the as the as the doctor it was clear that you know he was someone who was immersed in the lore of the show a big fan himself and he'd done Indeed, he'd done some of the narrations as well of the of the documentaries around the return of the show. So it's yep. obvious that he had he had a foot in the door. Yes. Yeah. I mean, I remember. I mean, I used to watch Drama Rama every week, so I probably saw him in that episode where he is the bad Scottish guy handing out cigarettes and trying to get other teenagers to smoke. So I don't specifically remember it, but I'm sure I would have seen it, but it just never lodged in the memory. And I know I'd have seen him in Rabsy Nesbit when he was playing the transvestite barmaid but again it didn't particularly register but the first time that I really stood up and took notice of him I think it would be in Randall and Hopkirk deceased when he appeared in an episode of that I think he was playing like a mad scientist type fella and he was very very good in that and I thought this guy's excellent and then after that of course he showed up in some big finish doing cold it's playing the evil Nazi Fertz mm-hmm. Fable Kurtz and yeah he was he stood out in that as he was, just had a very nasty, vicious edge to him, particularly his voice. He sounded quite sneaky, slime. Just thought, yep, he's a very, very good actor. And after that, actually, he did, he featured in, because I found out he was from Paisley, a couple of my friends had been at the recording, and I did an interview with him for the Paisley Daily Express, because that's the kind of person I am. I just like to talk to Doctor Who people. And did a bit for the PDE. No, it was after his second one when he was in the Sixth Doctor story with Evelyn uh, set in Edinburgh when he played Daft Jamie and we got pictures from that. So it was, you know, really good fun just to chat to him. Really nice guy. And then I saw him at the Lyceum in Edinburgh in a play and I don't even remember what the play was, but I know that some in the Lyceum, there's a few of us Doctor Who fans there and he met with us in the bar afterwards. So had a wee blether there. And then next thing I knew he was in Casanova, like yourself. I didn't actually watch Blackpool initially on its first broadcast, but obviously went back and saw it afterwards. And yeah, I was very taken with him and thought, yeah, this guy is good. So I was delighted when he was cast as the Doctor, because it was actually my friend Craig who broke that story in the Scottish Daily Mirror when there used to be such a thing, saying that Eccleston's gone and 
David Tennant is the new doctor. And yeah, it was uh, a real surprise. I remember Craig phoning up to tell me because he knew he was a fan and he's a bit of a fan himself. And yeah, so David Tennant's new doctor. I was like, what? Christopher Eccleston's like, no, Eccleston's gone, mate. So yeah, that was quite, quite good fun. That was an exciting time. Of course, that's the start of Tennant's era, but today we're going to talk about the end with one of his final episodes during the run of specials from 2009, the animated Dreamland. Do you remember watching it first time around? Would you have watched it in segments on the red button or would you have gone for the full length broadcast in the early December? Yes, that's that's my full length broadcast. I know it was it was on the on the BBC website and on the red button service, but I was never very into that. So I just waited until that came out and then obviously got the DVD when that was released as well. So yeah, a special yeah. early Christmas present. It is, because I mean, I suppose a lot of people just tend to think that that year there were just the four special episodes with starting off with the Planet of the Dead, then Waters of Mars and End of Time Parts 1 and 2. But a lot of people mm-hmm. forget about the wedding of Sarah Jane Smith, which obviously fits mm-hmm. in there quite nicely. And of course, Dreamland, which kind of annoys me, because if I'm doing a tenant watch through, these episodes very much fit in there. Yeah, yeah, they yeah. do, they do. Let's have a wee trailer for Dreamland now. Reports have come in of a recent unauthorized entry to the top secret base known as Area 51. Howdy there, partners! A person of unknown origin. The only name he would give us was... I'm the Doctor, by the way. The Doctor. Take me to your leader. I've heard all kinds of things about that place. None of it's good. Look out! Dreamland? Oh, I've always wanted to go there! Doctor Who. Dreamland. From Saturday on Red Button. Another dimension of Doctor Who. What did you think of Dreamland? I was very pleasantly surprised by it at the time. Yeah, me too. Um, I think I was never particularly into things like the Star Wars Clone Wars stuff and things like that, you know. So not a huge fan of, of animated versions of, you know, real world stories, if you can call Doctor Who a real world story. But I was, like like yourself, I was pleasantly surprised um, and I thought, mm, I'm not sure about this animation, but then after about, you know, a couple of minutes, I was I was gripped by it and I thought this is really good and the animation was really good as well. So yeah, I really enjoyed it. I thought that it captured the kind of the fast pace humour and energy of David Tennant himself, uh, albeit in animated form. And obviously Phil Ford, he co-wrote The Waters of Mars. Didn't he, he did indeed, yep. The Wedding of Sarah Jane Smith, was that one of his as well? I don't know. No, that was Gareth um, Roberts, I think. No. What pleased me about it was thinking that it was mercifully free of all sorts of clunky continuity references. You know, there was there was really, apart from the, the Doctor saying, I'm a Time Lord, I'm, a, I'm an alien, there was there was nothing else that you needed to know about the, about the show, you know, so you could come in completely cold uh, and, um, and just enjoy the story. Yes, I agree. It was a very stylized animation. But I think once you sort of get past that and realize that's the way it looks, just go with it and enjoy it. And that's very much what I did. I hadn't rewatched it in years because I think the last time I watched it would be when I did a, a tenant run through start to beginning. And it was just fab just dropping this in because it's a wee bit of extra content in the way that you've got the infinite quest in the previous season. But I'm sure we'll come to that another day. And it's just a wonderful little gem. It's fast and it's funny. It's really funny. Some really good lines in there. 
And what a cast that Gary Russell got together. It's got David Warner, there's Lisa Bowerman, and there's just various people that he'd worked with on Big Finish. And of course, Georgia Moffat nowadays, of course, going by the name Georgia Tennant. Yeah, yeah. Who'd have thunk it? Yeah. And she does a very good American accent, but I suppose with her mum being from the States, it's something that she'll have had in her years all her life. So it's something that she'd be able to pick up yeah. on. Yeah, yeah. But no, she was very good. She was very good. Yeah, there's a nice so, chemistry there with the Doctor. And I particularly like the fact the aliens are something a bit different as well. The fact that they've arrived with a small party and they, grow, they, they breed because they've had their eggs, so they've grown their army that way. So quite a good way of doing an invasion through stealth. Yeah, one of the lines that the Doctor starts rhyming through Die Hard and Alien and Die Hard 2 and all that. And I thought, well, someone's clearly seen Alien. <laughs> <laughs> The Queen laying all of these. I thought, yeah, I've seen that somewhere before. But yeah, kind of a nice cheeky reference um, yep. to it, and a nice kind of turning on its head of the of the usual trope of being abducted by by grey aliens. That this time it's the poor wee greys that are that have been uh, kidnapped themselves, and you know something that we, we see a bit uh, in, in in Doctor Who, but maybe not not enough but we've seen a bit more of it recently of the fact that you know the aliens are not always the bad guys and even the ones who are the bad guys can sometimes have a possibility of change and, <laughs> and that's and there's that nice kind of i think you know i always look at things from a kind of a kid's point of view and say well what are the what are the messages that are coming from this and and, and there was a nice kind of it's a moral point but yeah that there's a you know that that the doctor spares the I can't remember how you pronounce them again. Lord Aslock's people. Yeah, that those guys. You know, because he knows that they're capable of change and will change, you know. And that's and that's an important message for people. You, know, you can always change, you can always get better. Yeah. And it's done quite subtly as well. It's not in your face, which is quite nice to see. Yeah. It's not kind of it's not kind of preachy. Yeah. Uh, have been times of late when I feel like maybe has been the case, but but no, it's just it's just nicely uh, slipped in there. I thought, yeah, fantastic. Well, I think it's time to find out about how the whole thing came about. I do have to say, I thought that the script was really good. It's it, it does genuinely feel like a TV episode, and okay, it might have been quite expensive to imagine in real life, but it's very much got all the the tenth Doctorisms are in there having a laugh his popular culture references. In fact, throwing back to something you said earlier when you mentioned Alien and Aliens, of course, the Doctor never mentioned the fact that it was the, the gentleman who was killed by the chest burster. And if he'd mentioned Alien 3, there might have been another familiar face in there as well, that certain McGann fella. Yeah, yeah, indeed, indeed. I thought it was quite funny, but that's the sort of thing that I quite like. So let's have a wee chat with the man who was responsible for writing it. It's the fantastic Phil Ford. Hi, I'm Phil Ford, and I wrote Doctor Who Dreamland, the animated adventure. Welcome to the Power of Three podcast, Phil. It's a pleasure to have you on board. It's a pleasure to be here. Thanks for inviting me. Do you remember how the whole basis of Dreamland came about? Because obviously you had been involved with writing some other stuff that year for Doctor Who. No, I don't. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, they they done they done a, a previous animation, and I think well, am I right in thinking it was around the time we were coming we were coming to the end of David's that's right. 
Um, and uh, yeah, so I, th I think it was at the time when we just got the specials we were doing. Presumably, I ju I'd just done, or I was still on the end of working on uh, Waters of Mars, I'm guessing. And they wanted something for uh, that was going to be paid by, by paid for, as I remember, by uh, CBBC for for Doctor Who. And the intention was initially that it would be a series of short episodes which would go out on the red button. Um, that's about as much as I remember of the early days. Of. So yeah, I mean, it was. I, the fact that it was i can't remember how many how many episodes they were intended they were intending immediate immediately it was something like it was either I, I don't know it was about five there were five minute episodes or 10 minute episodes or something like that which was a cool challenge you know um and actually watching it through again as i have done recently to remind myself because it was so long ago it's interesting because you know obviously the version that i've seen is the one that they stitched together for for BBC Two, I think it went out on afterwards, and um, and and on the DVD, and it really races along because it's got that thing that you you only have however many minutes it was for each episode. So um, I think everything should be written for ten minute ten minute <laughs> episodes, really, because that would really move stories along. So I don't really remember much more about the the process of how it was put together, mm -hmm. uh, but it was great fun to do. Yeah, of course you were no stranger to writing for animation, were you? Well, I'd done uh, Captain Scarlet, of course, with with Jerry Anderson, and I mean that again. Talk about moving stories along. You know, those were I think twenty two minute episodes, and each one when we went into it, the intention was to make it feel like a movie. Um, and so you didn't hang around, you really jumped straight into the, the action and, and just motored along. So, uh, yeah, I mean, the, the thing is, when I, when I first came to do Scarlet, it was the first time I'd done animation. Before that, you know, I'd done a lot of live action. I did Coronation Street, for goodness sake. It could have been much more different from Captain Scarlet. But I was thinking, oh, great, you know, we can, you know, every, we, we can go anywhere, we can do anything. But the thing that I came to realise very quickly with Captain Scarlet was that, yeah, you could go anywhere and do anything, but it still had a cost because it was computer generated. In a way, Dreamland, because of the style of animation, gave us even more, gave us more leeway to do so. You know, and, and, the, and the thing that I remember Gary Russell talking about when we, when we first started talking about it was that there was no point in doing an animated Doctor Who, if it was a story that we could just as easily do as live action. Uh, so we had never at that point, to the best of my memory, we'd certainly not filmed in America at that time. Um, although we did obviously for Planet of the Dead in one of the other specials, um, went off to some desert somewhere, I can't remember where it was. Um, so the idea of, of doing a story that was set in the desert in America with big monsters that you know was was uh, was what came out of it really. Um, so it's just a question of thinking what can't we do generally what could we not afford to do at that time? What do we not have the technology to do at that time on Doctor Who? Um, kind of led us to that story. Plus I'd always been and still am 
fascinated by the Roswell crash and, and Area 51 and all of that. So we just all kind of gelled together. Were you much of a Doctor Who fan before you came to work in the script? Oh my goodness, of course. I mean, of course, you know, I grew up with Doctor Who. I can't quite remember the first episode, but I know I was around, I'm that old. <laughs> uh, and, and yes, of course, I mean, Doctor Who, a lot of my early memories of Doctor Who. I mean, more John Pertwee onwards than uh, certainly William Hartnell or Patrick Troughton. But I'd always been a big fan, and, and a lot of the stories that I'd never at that time seen on TV, I'd read in the Target novels as well that were available. So yeah, I was absolutely steeped in, in Doctor Who. I mean, I've, I've always thought, you know, I've, I've been really lucky as a writer because it's not very often that you get to, to write for, your, for the heroes that you had when you were a kid. But I got to do Captain Scarlet, which was, you know, my favourite of the Jerry Anderson puppet shows. And, and then I get the chance to do, uh, to do Doctor Who, largely as a result of having done Captain Scarlet. And of course, on, on top of that, writing for my favourite companion of all time, which was uh, Liz Sladen, you know, so, you know, uh, doing the Sarah Jane Adventures. So, um, yeah, I've been pretty lucky in, in, in all of that. So you mentioned that you're a big fan of the Area 51 and all that goes on in there. Did you do quite a bit of research for it? Um, not really, because, I, you know, because I'd always been fascinated by it. It was stuff that I'd al I already knew, really. And of course, you know, a, a lot of it is, um, is just pure hokum anyway. But um, I, th I think I think in terms of maybe not research, but it was the, the, the inspiration for it was yeah okay. There's the there's the the whole Roswell incident and, and all of that. But also I wanted to do something which kind of harkened back to those 1950s B movies, yeah, you know, like them, and it came from outer space. Particularly something was set in the desert. So that was probably more of something that I researched rather than the. Than, than, than actually the Area 51 side of it. Although the, the, the line that the doctor delivers, which I think is about 1994, when, the, when the, the government, when the US government finally admits that it was, you know, I think that's, that's correct. I think it was 1994 when they finally admitted it existed. Though, of course, they've never yet admitted that they've got a flying saucer there. <laughs> but that will come one, one of these days. <laughs> You know, it's always the sort of thing you could imagine Trump having wanted to go and see and then tell everybody whatever he saw, or well, they'd hide it around well, the corner. It's it's kind of one of those things that makes me think that there really isn't anything at Area 51. <laughs> because he would never have been able to keep his mouth out of it. Or, on the other hand, as happened in, in uh, gosh, what was the movie called? In Independence Day. Uh, of course, they never did tell the president what was there. So, so that's probably the case. Yeah, I, I just... I, that kind of thing has fascinated me since I was a kid, you know, and probably largely because I was so into Doctor Who and Star Trek and Captain yeah. Scarlet and all those things. I had a very misspent childhood. So, uh, Sounds exactly like mine as well. <laughs> it's probably the same for most people who are, who are still watching Doctor Who today. Yeah. But, uh, and there's nothing wrong with that at all. So, Absolutely not. Uh, yeah, so it was, it was great fun to be able to kind of explore that era as well, seeing the Doctor at that time, you know, and, um, and it's a very evocative period to, well, you could still get a proper chilli in America. <laughs> <laughs> but, 
and uh, and girls ran around wearing bobby socks and stuff like that. Yeah, it was um, it was it was great fun. And of course, and it ties in to the whole other side of the true Area 51 in terms of the, uh, the at the at the time them being scared stiff of the Russians, you know, and what the Russians might be cooking up. And, you know, and that's, I suppose, if I was being realistic, it has an awful lot more to do with the, with why Area uh, 51 has been so secreted to be guarded so well over, over the years in terms of what goes on there. Because it was, you know, it did, it did come out of the, um, of the Cold War, really, and, it, uh, and, the, and the, the Americans, paranoia about the about the russian threat the red threat and it wasn't manchester united um, <laughs> so uh, yeah it's a, it's a cool period and uh and I'm, I'm you know i'm delighted that we managed to do it how did you find creating your own companion for the episodes <laughs> i think um uh, Cassie and, and Jimmy's Dorking Wolf kind of created themselves, really. I think it was going going back to that, when you start an a story like that, you know, it's about bringing in those icons that people instantly recognise, so that they know where they are and they know when they are. And, um, you know, I, I think when I, when I first started thinking about it, there was no question that the first thing the Doctor was going to do was to walk into, a, into an American diner. Uh, because they are just so iconic of the of the period, and so, so you know the fact that Cassie, the girl behind the um, behind the bar, and, and Jimmy Stalking Wolf, the First Nation uh, boyfriend, uh, it, 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 are there and becomes And incidentally, when we were casting it, Russell was very keen that um, that we actually had a uh, a First Nation actor. Um, to play the part, and he was uh, Tim Howard was was apparently um, descended from Cree Indians, so as he as he told me while we were there. So uh, I hope I got that right. I'm pretty sure it was Cree, uh, but certainly he he was of the blood. So uh, so that was um, interesting. <laughs> <laughs> you mentioned Russell there. Was he yeah. quite involved with keeping an eye on the script as you developed it? Well, Russell was aware, was always involved in keeping an eye on, on scripts, whatever it was at the time. I, I, th I think it was probably, uh, I mean, it certainly was nothing that, as, as I recall, that he got hands on with, but he was certainly aware of it and was re and read the drafts of the script and everything, every everything in terms of whatever we did in the Doctor Who world at that time went through Russell. Uh, he was the showrunner on the show, so, uh, so obviously he needed, yeah. And, and I was quite used to that, having done Sarah Jane and Torchwood and Doctor Who as well. So uh, it's cool. I always had a great collaborative relationship with Russell. And of course, you got to write for David's Doctor. Now, I would imagine that you'd probably have to do almost a bit of extra dialogue, given the way at which David speaks and delivers it. Just so so much pace to it. Um, I, <laughs> I knew I was writing for... Uh, for, for David's doctor and I just wrote David's doctor really wasn't it you know I mean it was it was awesome and 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 David was brilliant and he goes into the uh, into into the studio and he just lifts everybody else's uh, performance in there because he's just a, gives 110% every time even in a recording booth he's amazing so so that was uh, really really cool uh, and he was he was great, and of course we had Georgia as well playing uh, playing Cassie, 
it was a family affair. <laughs> <laughs> so what do you recall of the studio sessions? They were a joy. I mean, we, I, I, I'm pretty sure we recorded them over a weekend. And I know I went, I went down, to, uh, down to London for the weekend uh, and, <laughs> and, and took my wife down with me. And she, she went off shopping while I went into the, uh, into the studio. But on the second, or maybe it was three days we did over, but something like that. But I know that uh, certainly at one point she decided, I said, you know, well, just, you know, just come in and just see a bit of it. And she came in and saw a bit of it. And, um, and then, uh, because David was there, just stayed the whole day. <laughs> <laughs> Funny that. Uh, yeah, yeah. So it was. Uh, so yeah, it was. But it was. They were great, you know. And every brother, everybody brought their A game to it, and we had a great cast. We had David Warner in it, for goodness sake, uh, playing Lord Aslock, and uh, it was. It was. It was. It was tremendous. You know, you as a as a writer, you couldn't you couldn't wish for a better cast to be playing your your part. You know, the fact, and it and it it was audio it was a, it was we were we were recording for a uh, for an animation but it was just as thrilling as it would have been uh, you know making something you know live action for tv and actually and we made it an awful lot faster than we would have done if it had been live action as well we'd probably still be working on it now if it was if it had been <laughs> anything else i mean all the different places you know you had the desert you had area 51 and you have the uh, you have the ghost town. You have the uh, the vaults. Very the very raiders of lost for the lost art vaults that we had in it, um, which was which was another part, a part of that thing. You know, I kind of wanted to bring that feel of a load of different. Uh, I would never describe raiders as a B movie, but that B movie feel feel to it. So there were an awful lot of touch points throughout the throughout the script. I mean, you got raiders. You got as I said before, you got them. You've got a bit of aliens, uh, even a bit of Die Hard in there as well. So uh, all my homage, not ripping off the tool, it was all homage. <laughs> but um, but uh, hey, it was great fun. It was great fun. Yeah, and uh, and Gary did a great job just getting the great performances out of the cast. Yeah, yeah Gary's a great director when it comes to audio. He, he absolutely knows what he's doing. Um, and um, it was it was probably from my memory of it is that there weren't that many retakes in it you know there was an awful lot that he got off first time yeah okay so you may well you probably take another another take on it anyway uh, just to be safe and everything but i seem to remember from from memory of it there was i wouldn't want to say he didn't have to do an awful lot of directing he did <laughs> but uh, i do rem i do remember him getting georgia to scream and scream and scream when she does that scream when she's first uh, face to face with the uh, with the Viprox and uh, and she screamed her poor lungs. <laughs> she, she's a good screamer. At least she was when Gary finished with her anyway. <laughs> Maybe that's something about Gary Russell. I don't know. <laughs> Gary Russell, he makes women scream. Mm. <laughs> he can make men scream too. <laughs> so how did you feel when you finally saw it all come together with the visuals? It was tremendous. You know, it was... Uh, you know, I, I mean, there have, there's been there, have, there has been um, reference uh, since and at the time to the uh, style of the animation with it on it, and you know, if I'm honest, the the animation, having come from Captain Scarlet, wasn't the same. But the truth of the matter is, for what it is, 
it works really well. It is like reading a, it's like reading a comic book come to life, you know, and, and so I, I, I think that's fine. And, and the one thing, of course, that, that even if anybody ever did make any comments about the about the the stilted animation which is what i think people said you know they always said but the story's a gem so you know there's 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 no nicer thing they could say about it really as far as i'm concerned as the writer but it was you know i always get blown away whenever i i watch anything that you know that i've written that appears on screen well Generally speaking, I've always got <laughs> certainly anything I've done in the Doctor Who world, I've been blown away by it. I think more than anything else, I just think I'm grateful that people have employed me <laughs> to do it. <laughs> Probably that's what it comes down to. But yeah, and and the, and the other thing is, I think when I looked at the greys that are in it, uh, I, uh, I'm going to have to consult my notes here because Saruba Velak and Rivesh Mantilax. <laughs> Why on earth did I call it those like that? I don't know. <laughs> but you look at it, and I, I watching it again the other day. It just the, the animation still brings a certain humanity to them. You really feel for those two characters, and that's something that goes beyond the writing, and actually is something that's captured on screen. So, um, so I can't really, I can't really criticize the animation. I don't think at all. Whenever I do think about it, the first the the image that comes to mind is that of Rivesh Mantelax reliving the uh, his world being torn apart by the Viperox, and there's some, there was something really moving about that sequence. Yeah, you know, at the end of the day, I just loved the way it was produced. Yeah, and it meant that you get two Doctor Who stories out under your name that year. <laughs> I had forgotten it was the same year, to be honest. But yeah, and of course, it was also the uh, the stepping stone for us to then go on and do the um, the computer games, the, the video games that we did for the BBC. And you know, that was that again was a great adventure doing that. I think I think when you do something different with a you know a brand like Doctor Who, into you know, when you do an animated version of it or. Or, or whatever you do with them, I suppose, and with an audio version of it, it's always interesting to see how you, how you can push it, how you can make it different, make it feel different, and yet at the same time make it feel like it's a part of the Saturday Night series that goes out. Well, it definitely felt it to me, and when I rewatched it, absolutely loved it. And my colleague John, who I discussed it with earlier in the podcast, and we're both saying how much we love it. So there you go. Well, that's good. It's good to hear. It's, it's nice to know that people are still watching it all these years later. <laughs> well, fingers crossed. There might be some more in the future. So, Well, you never know. Who knows what the future may hold? Absolutely. <laughs> Not a Viperox invasion. Oh, no. Definitely don't want Sorry? that. We definitely don't want a Viperox invasion. But no, Phil, thank you so much for your time and having a wee chat with us today. It is really appreciated. No problem at all. It's a joy to talk to you. Thank you. John. We've touched on the cast a bit earlier, some really good performances in there. And I think you must be doing something wrong if you can't get a good performance out of David Warner, again, getting his Doctor Who on-screen debut here. And what a performance, very good villain, isn't so, it? Indeed, yeah, yeah, he's got a great, a great voice. Again, if we're talking about, you know, six degrees of Doctor Who separation, um, the first time I became of him was in the, in the Omen which of course featured Patrick Troughton as well, coming to a sticky end or a, a pole end. 
so yeah, great, yeah, great, um, a great actor. And of course, this was his. He said, yeah, it was his first kind of proper screen debut, but he he had to wait until was it Cold War, mm -hmm. the episode they yep. with the Ice Warriors, <clears throat> before we actually get to see him on screen as as himself. No, I think it's a great cast with lots of familiar names from the days of Big Finish when the director, Gary Russell, worked there. And he's now going to tell us all about directing it. Uh, my name is Gary Russell and I was the director of the audio side of Dreamland and co-producer with Anne Renapson. This must have been a bit of a joy for you, combining some loves of yours, your love of animation, your love of audio work, and your love of Doctor Who. It was an interesting uh, conflab of all three, certainly, particularly coming relatively soon after we'd done Infinite Quest. And that had been an interesting experiment, I think is a good way to describe it. I think Infinite Quest was very successful. Well, I know it was very successful because of what happened later, but it wasn't a style of animation. I, I on, on Infinite Quest, I really looked after the talent side of it and wasn't hugely involved in the production side. That was James Goss. He he worked. I only went up to Firestep once or twice, I think, during the whole process. Um, James dealt with all of that. So I sort of on on Infinite Quest, I I did the the actors and the casting and all of that side of it. And then I saw the finished product after after it was all delivered, and and hadn't been hugely involved in the post production or anything like that with Infinite Quest. Whereas with Dreamland, Anwin and I, I think Matt Fidel was there as well. I was much more involved all the way through. So yes, I, I did voice directing and, and did all that as well. But I was involved in the whole process, looking at animation, looking at work, going down for post-production sessions, going into the, the edit with Matt Mullins, going into the, the, the sound work with, with Doug. So sort of all the way through and had been there as part of the team choosing the animation house as well um so i was there right from the very beginning through to the very end which hadn't been on infinite quest so that was very very exciting and, and a huge learning curve for me uh it's a huge learning curve for all of us actually i mean anwin hadn't done any more animation than i had so we had a great deal of fun learning what we were doing on that and of course when it came to getting a cast together quite a few people that you'd worked with before and given them their very first Doctor Who credits. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. Um, so a bit like with Infinite Quest, where Julie had said, I think you should use this person, I think you should use this person, and I filled in lots of the others. We had the same thing here. So uh, she said, I think it'd be really nice if Cassie was played by Georgia. And of course, I had no problems with that because I'd worked with Georgia when she was, I don't know, 15, 16. I think we'd known each other for years. So I was very excited by that. I don't think, I mean, we all knew, but I don't think the public at large knew that David and Georgia were together at that point. I think they probably did by the time it was transmitted, but certainly it wasn't known. The other actors, I think, working with us at the time weren't aware that, that they were they were a couple. I don't think it was hugely well known. I might be wrong, but I don't think it was hugely well known they were a couple. So yes, working with, with, with Georgia was, was just fantastic. Everyone else on that, I was pretty much free to cast as I wanted, but I talked to Andy in, in the casting team because I was very keen that the characters of Jimmy and, and his grandpa 
were A, played by Americans, but more importantly, I wanted to try and find genuine indigenous American actors. Not easy, I have to say, in the UK. This is in the, the days when, nowadays, it's probably quite easy to do it linked up and actually have an actor in America do that. We couldn't do that back then, it's even, you know, 12, 13 years ago. And Tim, Tim Hauer, I think was half American Indian and, and half not. And Clark Peters was absolutely Andy's suggestion. This was, I can't think if Clark had started to work on The Wire at that point or not. Um, whether we grabbed him when he was coming back from doing something on The Wire or whether we got him just before he went off and did The Wire. Clark Peters was amazing. We, he, we only had him for a couple of hours, but he was such a lovely man and really sort of calming and quiet and everything you needed for that role. I, so Andy cast him and Tim and, and there were two bits of absolutely perfect casting. And the rest of them were all people I, yes, as you say, I'd, apart from Nick Rowe, I'd never worked with Nicholas Rowe and I wanted to. I'd wanted to try to get Nick into a big finish a couple of times actually and his agent had always not been interested in, in really talking to him about it. I got Alan Cox into, oh, was it Roof of the World, I think? That's the one. And I'd wanted, and I'd wanted uh, Nick with him in that, because obviously being uh, young Sherlock Holmes and young Watson, I thought it'd be quite fun to team them up. But I hadn't been able to get Nick for, for that play, so I'd had Alan, which is just brilliant. So I'd always had in my mind that I wanted to work with, with Nicholas Rowe. And so when this part came up, and I thought, well, we've got a bit of power behind us now. So I asked Andy to, to investigate him, and that came back with the firm yes. Lisa, obviously, and Stuart I'd worked with before, David I'd worked with. I could never understand how, at that stage, David Warner had never been in Doctor Who. It just seemed utterly mad to me that he... So I was like, right, got to get David Warner into Doctor Who some way. In much the same way I'd done that on Infinite Quest with, with the likes of, of Stephen Greif and people like that. You know, you just... And at the time, Clayton as well. So you just go, yes, I, I really want, you know, these people to be in, in, in Doctor Who. And David, I remember David coming to the studio and going, you know, oh, how do you want me to do this one? And I said, basically, I just think, because it'll be voice affected, but I said, you just got to do with this what you did with Rachel Ghoul in the Bruce Tim animated Batman series. And he looked at me and said, oh, I can't remember what I did with Rachel Ghoul. So I played him a bit of Rachel Ghoul. Oh, yes, that's what I, and boom, that's what I got. I got Rachel Ghoul. Um, and that's exactly what I wanted from David in that. So it was really nice, and I, I think I think we did the whole thing in two days. I don't think we were more than two days. And they were fairly intense two days. And quite unusually for, for me and for, for the way audio is done, we pretty much did it in order. Because everyone was sort of involved, other than uh, Nicholas Rowe and Lisa Bauman, who I think were only in on the second day, because they only came into the, the story sort of uh, two-thirds of the way through everyone else was there sort of from the beginning and we were able to to go through the whole thing in one fell swoop and it was quite nice to to record not completely but pretty much in order yes I think Clark only came in Peter Guinness I mean I was so excited another actor who'd never done Doctor Who and I kept thinking how has a man of your stature and your talent and your voice never been in Doctor Who so again he was, he was my first choice for, for Mr. Dread, and when we brought Mr. Dread back in the Sarah Jane Adventures, I kept saying, oh, Peter Guinness played him on the cartoon, but they didn't want to go with that, or the director of that particular episode of Sarah Jane. 
uh, wanted to go a different way with the character, which I thought was a shame, but uh, so that's above my pay grade to argue about things like that. But it was very nice that, that we were able to take that character um, from the cartoon and, and, you know, put them into the Sarah Jane Adventures to make that universe feel a little bit bigger, even if it was a different actor. Yeah, and I love the fact that the fact you got to work with a friend in the fact you had Phil Ford as the writer, and that must have been good fun as well. I've spent most of my life when I was working for those six years up at BBC Cardiff uh, doing stuff with Phil Ford. It's like everywhere I turned, it's like, come on, let's work with Phil, let's work with Phil. I just love working with the man. He's just the nicest, kindest human being on the planet. And we we work very well together as, as writer and script editor, and we also work very well together as, as writer and producer. And of course, then we did the the, um, the games, the, the Matt Smith games together later as well. That was him, me and Anwin again. Uh, yeah, working with Phil is you just you just have an instinctive trust and belief. And that script, I, I've got them all somewhere on a, on a disc. But my memory is that in terms of the amount of work Phil had to do on that script, it's like there's only two or three drafts of the whole thing. And it was just he knew right from the word go what we were going to do. The, the, the idea was his, um, the, the whole setting of, of 50s Area 51, it was something he wanted to do. Russell and Julie bought into it immediately, they were very, very keen. We could just see that from an animation point of view that was quite a, an easy thing to do and then there were spaceships and there'd be aliens and, and it was just going to be enormous fun. There were obviously things that we hadn't anticipated. It was meant to be 2D. We no we hadn't anticipated that it was going to be a 3D animation at all. But actually, it all worked together very, very well. I think it worked better in 3D than it would have done in, in reusing re sort of the basic flash animation style that we had for Infinite Quest. I think I think we came off. We were quite lucky with what we got with Dreamland in the end. Yeah. What do you remember about the studio sessions and particularly working with David again? Well, working with David's always fun. Again, we'd known each other for years, long before he did Doctor Who. So it was just like old mates coming in, really, you know. And obviously there was a, a frisson between him and, and, and Georgia. So, yeah, it's, David is a very easy person to get along with. I, I think I've never heard anyone ever in my life ever say, oh, bloody David Tennant. It, it, it just doesn't happen. You know, he is just one of the world's nice people. So working with him, you're just constantly amazed at, at how far he is always willing to go and how much extra effort he's always willing to put in and how confident he is at that character, how good an actor he is at, at understanding everything. I mean, David's a very intelligent man as well, so he can, you know, he and Phil, because Phil was there for the recording sessions, and you know, if anything came up, he and Phil would be going back and forth, back and forth, just to sort of make it even more doctorish. But Phil instinctively knew how to write David's Doctor, even though at that point he hadn't done it. Because uh, I think this was just before we did... Uh, well, actually, no, because Gareth wrote the story with David in Sarah Jane, although Phil did some rewrites on it. So, yeah, this was this was his first time... Because he wrote this, because we did this a long time before we did Waters of Mars. Um, so this was his first writing of, of The Tenth Doctor. Um, but he got it. He just, he just knew it. And David enjoyed that. David liked the fact that that Phil was um, on the right wavelength. I think I think there's a lot of times um, I know that there had been some book readings that people had asked David to do and he was never that 
comfortable, some, not all the time, sometimes he was, but sometimes he'd say to me, like, that book wasn't really, you know, it's, it was a 10th Doctor book, but it could have been Tom, it could have been Chris, it could have been William Hartnell. And then sometimes he'd say, yeah, that, that writer really got my Doctor. And he felt that about Phil with, with Dreamland, absolutely. Fantastic. And of course, you've rewatched it recently, just before we had a chat. So, how do you feel about it now? I rewatched it a couple of weeks ago, and was absolutely blown away by just how good it is. I texted Russell last night and went, "Do you know what? This is the first time I've watched Dreamland since we made it. Since well, yeah, since we made it. I don't think I even watched it on transmission. I'm immensely surprised at how good it is. I'm very proud of it because it's good. <laughs> and I think at the time it got a lot of negative reaction because of the 3D. People weren't used to that level of 3D. And then there are limitations of always of doing 3D with a low budget and running is one of them. Uh, running is difficult in 2D or 3D. Frankly, running is difficult if you have a Disney budget. Look at Toy Story and see how they never really, oh, it's fine with the toys, but you never see Sid or anyone running on screen. They always cut them off at the midriff because animation whether it's in 2d or 3d has never really grasped human leg movement it's a very bizarre way that we move animals you can do quite easily humans run and walk in a very strange way and it's never a great idea i think in animation to constantly show people running and walking because it will never look entirely human and it can often take you out of the thing and i think looking back on it now and thinking this is this is 2010 we did this 2009, I think, actually, isn't it? Um, so that's that's a long time ago. That's 15 years ago, nearly. Um, 13 years ago. It, it's like the world has come of animation has come on in leaps and bounds since then. So what Little Loud were achieving back then on the budget they had was nothing short phenomenal. And I think, you know, I, I want to take some time to talk about this. I think some of the most amazing aspects of that animation are the backgrounds. I think they're absolutely beautiful and I think Darren's directing um, I'd love to I remember seeing some of the storyboards but not very many of them but looking at what Darren did and his shot composition and his camera moves and his actual storytelling which in animation is just as important as the script and the actors is, is what the director will achieve in actually doing the animation Darren's work is just phenomenal um, I really, really do love it, and I think it, it makes the whole thing feel very filmic and, and worthy of putting on television, which was never our original intention, but it's, it's, it's what we got. We, we were in a situation where we'd had Infinite Quest had gone out and see BBC, because it had been part of Totally Doctor Who, and this was, was intended as an online thing. And then, because of the success of Infinite Quest, CBBC sort of came into the production quite late on. I mean, we'd certainly not started animating, but we'd got the scripts and everything, and we might even have done the acting. We might have done the actors' recordings before CBBC came in and said, we will, we will show this on Saturday morning, that's fine. Um, have a bit of extra money, which is always helpful. And we had a brilliant, brilliant lady called Sarah Muller from CBBC come in and help Anwin and I on that side of it. And she was an absolute godsend because, of course, Sarah is, is a master of animation. She understands animation. She's been head of animations people all over the world. So she came down with 
and when I've been down to see Little Loud a couple of times and we'd seen stuff and gone, all oh, right, that's what that's happening, is it? And after that initial first kind of, oh, this is 3D, not 2D. Oh, I see. And we were talking to Sarah one day at a meeting and she said, well, um, did you see a walk cycle? Did you see a run cycle? Did you see turnarounds? And these were all phrases that meant nothing to us whatsoever. And this was our inexperience. We could see what we wanted to see on screen, but we had no, we didn't have the language uh, to describe it. And so Sarah came down to Brighton with us once. And we really sat down and, and Anwin and I just quietly sat in the background and, and I learned, I sat down and thought, this is the technical answer. I know what I wanted to try and convey to people. And Sarah is using the correct terms and talking the same language to these people, which is a language I didn't know. And so I learned so much from Sarah Muller on that production about how to do animation and what's necessary and how to do your pre-production a hundred times better than we did. And we were just blessed that Little Loud was so good, but having got, I mean, I can imagine now looking back at it, that Little Loud were probably sitting down at various points going, the bloody BBC people, they give us no input, they give us no help, and then they come down here and all they do is criticize. And looking back, I think, yes, they must have hated us because we just didn't know what was necessary in pre-production. So we left them to it. So they did their own pre-production without any input really from us, other than we would look at stuff and go, yes, that's good, or no, or no, that's not good. But we couldn't vocalize why. And then when Sarah came on board, suddenly everything fell into place and she was speaking the same language that Little Loud was speaking. And we sat, Anwin and I sat there going, right, that's what we needed to say. Okay, well, if there's a next time, which was in invaluable when we came to do the computer game stuff. Uh, with the guys up in Sheffield, uh, because we were then able to take all that stuff we learned from from Dreamland and put that into into work. But even getting, I mean, little loud when they first came to us. So what we did at the beginning was we had a sort of we let it be known that we were looking for an animation house to do Dreamland, and various people put him in. And Anwin and I were very very keen to find someone local in Cardiff. We thought it was important for BBC Wales to be doing something with the local Cardiff animation studios, of which there were back then quite a few. And so they did, they, they all pitched, and we got it down to five, four of which were Cardiff based, and Little Loud, who were, who were Brighton based. And we invited them all to come up to Cardiff, to the BBC, and have a meeting. And so that meeting was myself and Anne Wynne, and I think Matt Fidel was there, and Russell and Julie, and possibly Phil. I can't remember whether Phil was in that meeting with the animators or not. And they all came up and they pitched their stuff to us. And this is no good to, to the people listening to the podcast, but that is the oh, wow. uh, design for David Tennant's Doctor that Little Loud submitted. So you can see why I thought it was 2D. And there were various companies, uh, say, from, from around here. And there was one I was very, very keen on who without any input, input from us, had come up with a very Bruce Tim style of anime. And I'm a huge Bruce Tim fan. I, I, I think, you know, he's just a genius of an artist and producer. And so this stuff came out and I thought, that's the people I really, really want. I thought that'd be really, really good. And there were a couple of other really interesting ones. Lots of people going out and sort of taking it from different points of view. So we invited them all to come in for this meeting. And some of them were very good, and some of them we knew were actually at that meeting. We thought, oh yes, no, that's not going to happen, is it? Um, some of them clearly bit off more than they could chew, said oh, they could achieve this, this, and this, and we thought, not on this budget, even we know you won't be able to do that. And other ones said, you know, oh, we can do it in half that time, and we were going, no, you won't be able to. And then there was this one company, 
bless them, and I can't remember what the name of the company was, it might have been the people I wanted with the Bruce Tim look actually, who didn't turn up at all. But their, their CEO phoned us from a chalet in, in the Austrian Alps where he was on a skiing holiday. And I remember saying to Russell and Judy, yeah, this next person's not actually going to be here. He's going to be on the phone and he's on a skiing holiday. And I think this was a huge mistake because that immediately put Russell and Julia on a back foot. They were like, well, hang on. These people said they want to, they want this job. They are local. They were a Cardiff company. And of all the people they've got, they can't send anyone up a half a mile up the road, but we've got to talk to somebody on the phone who's on holiday in Austria at the moment. And I will say that the person that was on the phone in Austria, and I, I think he was, he probably wasn't the CEO, but he was probably quite high up, didn't really have any grasp of what Doctor Who was and kept saying ridiculous things about Tom Baker and, oh, is this going to have Tom Baker in it? And Russell was like, well, obviously not. And, and oh, you know, if it's Tom Baker and Daleks, that's proper Doctor Who, that is. Do you think, do you know who you're actually talking to? So that company didn't get the gig. But Little Loud, uh, and I think it was, I think it was David and Darren from Little Loud that came up, just desperately impressed us as two guys. They just said the right things, they knew the right things, and we went away going, yes, it's a little bit more stylized than we in intended, but actually this could work really, really well. And then suddenly we realized that, that it was 3D, not 2D, and, and we had assumed all the way down the line there's just this miscommunication between us and Little Loud. They were thinking 3D, we were thinking 2D. So when we first saw these models, we were going, oh my God, it's, it's the exaggeration and the out there design we expected, but it's in 3D, ah. So that took us a while to get our heads around. I remember coming back the first time we'd seen stuff and Anwen and I look at each other and going, is it just me that didn't know that was going to be 3D? Or neither of us, no, no, I didn't know either. Thank God for that, it's not just me that's stupid then. But we were completely bowled over by the 3D look of it. And we thought it was quite an interesting and, and, and interesting, daring experiment to do Doctor Who in 3D animation. Um, and Little Lab were a games company more than anything, so they were used to doing that kind of 3D animation for cutscenes for, for computer games. And actually, this was their first attempt at doing a full-length animation. So they were as green as we were, really. And as a result, we all got on really, really well because we were all finding our feet with this. But their work they were turning out was just phenomenal. We, we'd see something and go, oh, that's not going to look great, is it? And we'd go back two weeks later and see it in situ with the backgrounds, with the effects, and because they they worked very fast and very hard. And sat there and oh, my God, this is going to look fantastic. I remember one of the earliest sequences we saw, and still one of my favourites, is is the Doctor running out to, on the top of the, the, the secret base with the, um, the glass tube in his hand. And the helicopters coming up and, and him turning around and, and uh, Stuart's uh, colonel character standing there with a gun. And they just showed us that sequence of that 360 degree turn. And I was just like, wow, that that is absolutely phenomenal. And there are other moments like that. The moments at the, the end of one of the particular episodes with all the claws shooting through the ground uh, was another moment where I thought, and the queen, the Viprox queen is just a brilliant reveal. So they were just everything they did was so good. Their, their artists were good. Their designers were good. I say their backgrounds are just stunning. 
Um, and then we all sort of brought it all up once we got it all into uh, up to Cardiff and Matt Mullins put it all together and Doug and a couple of other people did the sound work on it and Anwin and I used to go down and sit and watch it we said, oh, can we tweak this, can we change that? And they did, the, the BBC intern, Matt and the Doug and everyone else were just brilliant and just did what we wanted with it. And at the end of the day, we suddenly went, oh, we have six really good episodes of a cartoon that, that it seems to have taken a while to get here, but worth it, absolutely worth it. And Russell and Julie uh, were very, very happy, which is kind of the most important thing for me. Is you know, if you want Russell and Julie to feel that they gave you a project and they put it in your hands and you didn't kind of shit all over it. And so I was very pleased with that. And I'm very pleased with the end result. I, it's much better than I remembered. Which is fantastic. I think it's, it's brilliant. I think it's a very worthy addition to that last run of Tenant in 2009. Yes. And I think it's because we always said, oh, it comes just before uh, Waters of Mars. You know, you should you should watch the, the thingy, the David Morrissey one, and then you should watch the Easter one that Gareth wrote. Then you should see Dreamland, and then you should see Waters of Mars, and then you should see End of Time 1 and 2. And that's your final season of specials. And at the time, everyone was like, no, 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 can't be asked for that. No, it's just a silly cartoon. And then I noticed a while back, because they never tell you these things, that it's turned it's turned up on various DVD and Blu-ray releases the BBC have put out as part of the season specials. Yeah. And I thought, well, that's nice. That's flattering. That's that's where it should be. Yeah, it's in there with the wedding of Sarah Jane Smith and that farewell season four special set. So yeah. Good. Good. So I'm very, very, very pleased with that, very proud of that, immensely proud of it, I think it's a, considering the budget, it was phenomenal. Brilliant. Thank you as always, Gary. My pleasure. So, there you go. That's pretty much all you could ever want to know about the making of Dreamland, short of getting hold of Mr and Mrs Tennant. So, you can follow us on our social media at Power of Three Pod. That's the number three, written as a number, not out in full. I'm at Finished Zine, F I N I S H E D Z I N E. And I'm at Dr. J McGB on Twitter. I've really enjoyed this. I've sort of been enthused by Dreamland. It's one of those ones that think, yeah, I enjoyed that, but I never feel the urge to go back and watch it. And I'm so glad that I did. It's sort of giving me something just that wee extra bit of David Tennant's Doctor and goes quite nicely considering I've just re-listened to all of the Dalek Universe series from Big Finish as well. Nice bit of Tennanty goodness to get through the day. Absolutely. Well, King, you know as well as I do yep. that this podcast would not be the groundbreaking seminal work that it is without <laughs> its popular culture references and fantastic music. So please put me out of my misery. Kenny, tell me what you're going to play us out with this episode. Well, John, I'm glad you asked me that because I mentioned recently that Pulp are my second favourite group and I've been completely not inundated with people asking me who are my favourites. So today's tune comes from my number one, collaborating with one of my contemporary favourites. Today we're playing out with Pet Shop Boys featuring Holly Alexander from years and years in the appropriately named Dreamland. Thanks for listening, everybody. We'll see you soon. Bye.
can come and go and still be here. 